0: Today on the podcast, well, today again, because we lost the first recording, we have Joe Gray out of uh, New York State. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is smaller groups, smaller departments, training in those types of environments, those types of worlds. Not everybody has, you know, the personnel requirements in order to put this type of stuff together on a regular basis. So talking about what a smaller job or a smaller team can do in order to train and then debunking some of the uh, education myths that are out there in fire rescue. So how you doing today, Joe? Oh, can't complain. I'm okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you just got off shift, I understand.
1: Yeah, got off uh, this morning. No, somehow I had no calls in the overnight. Um, put down in the records book. So, Has COVID slowed down your call, volume? Um. About two, three months it slowed down. Now it seems to be back up. So it's kind of the same as everybody. I think everyone's seeing that, the same thing. Yeah, everybody went through that lull
0: and then yeah. from there on you went. Okay. So uh, why don't you give a, for the listener out <laughs> there, where are you from? Uh, what are you doing? Like, let's uh, get a bit of background on you.
1: Um, So I work in a, a small, fully career agency of 18 guys. Um, we want a full man minimum right now. Usually three is our a bare bones. Um, about 18 square miles, small city. Um, we do a lot of a lot of open type stuff in the city for fire and rescue. We have a casino that's between 12 and 15 stories high, so we get a lot of uh, window washing type stuff, elevator rescues, and, and things like that. Uh, then we do. Paramedic level transport, so we do a lot of stuff to the hospital, 20 minutes away, no matter which way we go. Um, and we do water rescue, you can find space, some hazmat, um, general fire stuff that I think pretty much everybody does. I volunteer on the side in a small agency, a similar size city to where I work, and that's about 45 minutes away, so it's nice having the segregation between my, my two lives. Um, and I do a lot of teaching with a small local tech rescue team outside my my paid job, and on the side I do hazmat, emergency response, uh, confined space rescue standbys, and and all that kind of stuff. So I'm level, well I'm a level one rope access technician, a NFPA 1006 rope rescue technician. Do a lot of. Uh, the special ops stuff, structural collapse, water rescue, hazmat specialist uh, all, just pretty much anything technical rescue and and special ops—I've got my hands into. Right on. And now you say, um, eighteen members.
0: So you said minimum manning used to be three, but you're up to four now. Is that due to COVID? Correct. Correct. Okay, so if you've got to take a patient to the hospital, you said 20 minutes away. Yep. Are you leaving just two members to? stop of a fire apparatus or have you got more people running ambulance as
1: well so right now we' are 18 guys completely doing everything so Monday through Friday we have the chief and a code enforcement officer they're also on the job you know fully trained to do anything like the rest of us so Monday through Friday it's a six-man minimum usually but if the guys are on vacation or something like that uh, I guess hectic so nights and weekends we're down to full man. If one guy takes off, then we drop down to a three-man minimum, and that's the lowest we we get to. So if we take an EMS call, two of us leave the city for, you know, sixty minutes it will take, and one guy's back at the station doing everything himself. So if it's a second EMS call we get, that's a transport. We call mutual aid on that. If it turns into some type of technical operation from a walking fire up to a, a rope rescue, water rescue. Then we hit a, a recall to get any of the off-duty personnel in. There's a couple of small volunteer agencies around us that will come in and help as best they can. And we just hope for the best. <laughs> so we do a lot of John Wayne type stuff. Uh, right wow. now with, with everything going on, there might be times that we go from during the middle of the day, say five guys on, And we could drop down to one guy going to a file by himself within five minutes if we get two EMS calls about the same time, which happens quite a bit, unfortunately. Um, Hmm. so it's a dynamic at best.
0: (laughs) Now, me being north of the border, some of the questions may not be as relevant. Do you have to follow two in, two out rules, like writ rules down there?
1: Um, kind of, kind (laughs) of the way. The way things happen in New York State is we have a state-operated occupational safety and health. Um, down here, it's PESH, which is the public employee's safety and health. Um, they follow the same OSHA guidelines. So OSHA puts the stuff out from the federal side of things. The state makes their own rendition of it to to regulate, and we make the best of it. So if we're having good staffing, it's a, a day we have four guys on the engine. The boss is outside. I drive. Uh, we've got the two guys in the out, and then I'll two backstep guys go inside and, and put out the fire. will do a search; has to be done. If we're lucky, um, if it's confined space, same kind of deal. Unfortunately, if we actually followed every rule, we'd get nothing done. Every building we have would burn to the ground, and rescues would would not be done for twenty twenty five minutes because we just don't have the people. Um, so we follow them as best we can, but it's not a It's not a, everything happens every day because we have no people. You'll do something or you do nothing. And it's much easier to ask forgiveness than permission sometimes.
0: Fair enough. So I guess the question like you touched a little bit on it, when we get into things like technical rescue, we're going to do a high angle rescue or confined space. And you mentioned trend structural. Let's go, I guess, with the easier questions. When you start with like a high angle, so, you're going to run out and you're going to do a high angle. You're going to have two, three, four people max for like a high angle rescue or a confined space rescue.
1: Initially, uh, if we get lucky, it's during the day we might have as many as six guys, uh, which unfortunately, because we don't work with those same, you know, the chief and the code guy all day, every day. Sometimes that puts us at a disadvantage because things are just out of sequence, out of sync, um, because we don't work with these extra daytime staffing as much. Um, so, if we're lucky, we've got the four guys that are always on shift together and our usual crew, and it's going to be four guys, you know, 15 minutes. We get sent for a, a water rescue. We hit the recall right off the bat, but it's still going to take 10, 15 minutes at least to get somebody back in based off the way our paging system works and stuff like that. Um, so, usually, on the high end, we're going with four guys. On the low end, we might be going with two guys for the initial size up and operation.
0: Okay, so what positions or what double hats are guys wearing and girls wearing when they go out to these like a high angle call? What uh, what are you putting your people into? What kind of positions?
1: Uh, so generally speaking, and this is kind of going ahead of the eight ball a little bit. Myself and my full time partner that works with me exclusively, we've both gotten into more the the hands on one guy operating by himself repelling in and you know sizing up the situation to stabilize the best we can so we've kind of taken some of the, the rope access type of approach that one guy's on top rigging for rescue getting extra systems rigged and then one guy's going over the edge if we're lucky we've got three guys on top one guy over. um super hit and miss though so a lot of times we are going to be the relative well, it's rope rescue confined space you're going to be the attendant and the backup rescue and the incident commander all at once depending on what you have going on uh, whether it's a fire or it's, it's a tech rescue you're wearing multiple hats um, so i drive most of the time on my shift so if we get some kind of rescue operation then you know even a motor vehicle accident nine out of ten i'm going on the engine and when i get there i'm doing the initial extrication, sizing that stuff up as well as running tools uh, two of the old guys are probably doing the patient kill, the triage, and we will all just pretty much going every hat. You know, it's who can get to the job first. Option A, B, C, and D all have to get done. Whoever gets to that first is going to do it. Um, okay. So a lot of it's the, kind of the group think size up and, hey, Joe, you're not doing anything right this second. You're going to go do this now because this is the next step in the paradigm that has to get done.
0: Okay. So the most traditional, Let's just look at the tech rescue end of it. Cause there's a lot of holes we can obviously dive down here, but Absolutely. just in the tech rescue end, most fire department training for technical rescue NFPA standard, they're training you to use a lot more people than that. So Absolutely. you're sending your people out, I'm assuming to a regular, you know, fire college, um, you know, state level, whatever, then you're coming back and what are you doing initially? at your department and what long-term training are you doing in order to make sure the people that are coming back from training where they've got six, eight, 10 people there are being able to operate within your system.
1: So because of that dynamic staffing situation that we have, we actually run our own academy in-house. Um, the nice thing for us is we sit there and the guys are using the equipment they're going to be using every day for the next 20 years that are on the job. We'll teach them what we have. You know, it's not the difference between a, a K-12 vent saw, you know, the the big circular chop saw, depending on what guy you're talking to, the cutoff saw. It's not, you're learning how to use a K-12 in the traditional sense, and then you come back to, to where we're at, and you're using a, a steel saw that's the same thing. You know, just different name, slightly different quirks. So we do everything in-house for our initial training, and including up to the, what we call, the rescue tech basic. So that's a 24 hour basic class that goes over your anchoring systems, basic levels and, and raises, goes through the, the old rack pulley marinals or radium type system. Um so that's our initial training. When guys come back or they get on the line it's a lot of daily in-service training touching on you know an extra piece of meat for this topic. Um, so we do a lot more individual one-on-one skills because we we don't have the people to send a guy to academy for two weeks or three weeks whatever it's going to be because we just don't have the the people to backfill it with such a small agency. So we do a lot of one-on-one skills building on what was already taught in the academy that we did in-house that meets the state criteria, the state curriculum. Uh, so we have different laws of how the uh the file training is done for creole File files in this state. And then we just build on that bit by bit as best we can.
0: Okay. So, so what devices?
1: Sorry. What devices then
0: are you using as a department? And are those devices been picked in order to facilitate using a smaller team?
1: So the big thing at this point, we just went to let's see, two. Two or three years ago now, we had just gone to the Petzl ID. Before that, it was figure eights and brake racks. And we had marinals and all the bags. So we ran a bunch of Z-Rig bags is all we had. And because of the, the safety factors and whatnot, for the occasional rescue we did, no big deal. But was, our car line's gone up, our mutual aid has gone down um, for the availability of volunteers around us. We switched to the Petzl ID was one of the biggest things we did. Um, so we, I think we ordered three or four of those. So now the Z-Rigs, we're using the Petzl ID. So instead of stopping at three to one, we go right to a five to one to, to deal with the efficiency problems. Um, that was the biggest thing we went to. So then when the Maestro came out last year, we put some hands on it based off the, the operational Circumstances of having half inch open steel cable beanles and so on and so forth. The Maestro seemed to be the easiest device we can get our hands on. That was the safest. Price point wasn't bad. And we already had IDs. We didn't need guys grabbing one device to get down over the edge of that a system on the way back up. Um, so we've got one Maestro, three IDs at this point. We just, within the past couple of weeks, um, have two ASAPs now, ASAP locks. Um, so we can kind of pick and choose what happens with that and then myself and a few other guys we have our own rescue equipment um, that we were able to buy off our, our uniform allowance so because i use it as part of my daily job i was able to buy my own class three harness and all the extra the gadgets and, and whatnot we carry a couple of aztecs um so it's we're pretty much just transitioning into the i guess what would be the commonplace now of using the auto-locking devices, whether it's the ASAP lock, the ID, the Maestro, the Clutch, that style of device that up until recently has been unhold of in the fire department. Okay.
0: Um, You mentioned off your points allowance that you're picking up class three harness, things like that. So the city obviously has a few that they're probably on the rigs and then they allow you with your point allowance or your uniform allowance to um,
1: pick up other equipment. Then is that what I understand? Correct. Correct. Um, my thing is we get a few hundred bucks a year. And once you get a couple of years on a job, because we work a 2472, you can't go through pants and t-shirts that quickly. <laughs> so it's one of those things you either use it or you lose the money. Um, so if you want specialty water rescue equipment, then you end up getting, uh, you, know, you can pick up a, a pfd that you want specifically or a helmet that you want specifically a rope rescue harness um if you want individual pocket tools for your fire stuff you pick up whatever you want with that so we've got extremely basic setups on a lateral truck which functions as our technical rescue unit so we don't have a rescue and guys they'll train to do stuff and ask the right questions. They pick up what they they see to be vital and necessary for what they do um so we've got a few of us that have our own specialty honuses and it'll set up the way we want it but yeah generally speaking there's a couple of honuses and a couple helmets on the truck and you grab them if you go on a call and you have to piecemeal everything together Hmm.
0: um now you mentioned something else that was quite interesting you said it was tough to send firefighters away to take state training because you didn't have the backfilling availability when they left. So you're training them in house and I'm taking it, you're using a set of JPRs, whether that be from NFPA or state curriculum and trying to check them off. Are you finding that takes a long time in house or are you still managing to get through it in a reasonable amount of time?
1: Depends on the individual. So the way that the, the state training program functions, is they broke it down for confined space technician, it's one class. Um, so it's, a, I wanna say a full day class by the time it's said and done. And you have to come in with the basic rope awareness class, if you will, the rescue tech basic, they call it. So confined space by itself, it's a full day class. You go through what the, the state has for equipment, the state curriculum, we call it a day. On the rope side of things, um, and most of the classes like that, the wild rescue class is a one-week deal. The ice rescue is a couple days. I think it's three days, uh, two or three days now. The accident victim extrication, you know, the auto X stuff is, you know, a, a few days. And then the rope is probably the most in-depth for the technical with the exception of the, the structural collapse and trench because you have it broken down in four different classes. So the awareness level class, the 24-hour rescue tech basic, you show up, you know how you or taught how to tie knots and how to do a basket slain for your anchoring systems wrap three pole 2 omnidirectionals. omni-directionals all this other conventional education that we've all been teaching from the FPA 1006 for however many years it's been out and then it's broken down into operations after that so rescue tech basic is three days operations is four days and that's the the basic high angle so, you go to the academy and they teach you how to repel using a figure eight and a brake bow rack, and then nowadays an ID and a clutch. And then you do the basic evolutions of getting someone over the edge, putting them into a basket, getting them back up with no high directionals. Okay. After that, you go to another four day class that they call uh, Rope Rescue Technician One. And that ends up being a four day class that you just do. Basic high directional stuff, you get down, you do line transfers and pickoffs and some of those more individual type skills, not passing, more on the, the individual operational type stuff. And then tech level four, or excuse me, tech two is another four day class and all they focus on is high lines, doing the traditional twin tension high lines, the deflector lines, sloping lines, a lot more high directional type stuff and those kind of things. So by the time it's said, done, because we have a 20-person class, no one gets actual hands-on doing any of this stuff. You go through it once and say, oh, yeah, great, you you met the checklist because you ascended up 10 feet and you came back down 10 feet. So 10 to 10 equals 20, we call it a day. In-house, because we have a few of us still trained to that high level, we can spend one-on-one time. So now if I spend two hours with one of the, the new recruits on – just doing rope rescue I can get through ascending and repelling and the change ovals and the line transfer and I can do all that stuff if I've got time to do it based off calls I could do all that in three hours and now that is one whole day of class that they would have spent at the fire academy that I can now do in-house and move on to the next so the one-on-one seems to be a lot more efficient because you're not as an instructor babysitting 20 different students making sure nobody does something that's so detrimental and dangerous they accidentally walk off an edge without being clipped in because they won't pay attention so it's pros and cons we don't have the structural but on the same token you get better repetition and more hands-on to do it okay do you have any ever have
0: third-party folks come in to either evaluate your instructors or your people, um, just as a, a separate set of eyes outside of the organization, or is it all internal?
1: Uh, so usually it's, it's internal stuff, uh, myself and one of our other, um, I actual municipal train also we're both level two instructors and we're both technicians on multiple avenues, the of the 1,006. So, Putting those two things hand in hand using the 1006 and the state curriculum and building our own skill sheets more or less uh we do a lot of that stuff in house and there was not a good avenue in our area to call you know grown and rescue to come out do a a, a third party assessment because not enough time in in the day there's not enough money in the training budget and so on and so forth. So it's mostly done in-house. As long as we're following the accepted practice, the SPRAT, the NFPA 1006, the New York state curriculum, we make the best of it. Um, may not be the best way to do it, but it's the way we have to do it. So we, we make the best of it as best we can. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely
0: challenging. I mean, a smaller job, Not as much personnel, obviously, budgets have a constraint on them too. With that size, so yeah, if you want to perform and do those types of drills, you're going to have to find ways around that. Um, absolutely. So, when we were talking about this, you know, before you did mention that you do some work in industry in uh, New York State as well. How different is that to the fire service rescue that you're doing, you know, for the public side? Um, is there a great difference between industry there and public service or is it pretty much along the same lines? Um
1: depends on the agency. <laughs> so when we go out on a lot of these industrial jobs for my side job, um we're doing small private contract type stuff. We owe that third party contract we just doing safety. Um so we work a lot in New York State and Pennsylvania and we sit there. We follow the industry standards, the OSHAs, and, and so on and so forth. And because of where I operate, it's pretty much the same because we have a three-person standby team, which is no different than my day-to-day at the firehouse. Okay. So because of that limited manpower on both sides of it, for me, they run pretty close to the same. If I went to the big city like Buffalo, Rochester, Toronto, you know, these bigger agencies, it's going to be night and day just based off the amount of bodies we can throw at a problem to, to haul, um, how many safety guys we have watching because sets of eyes, stuff like that. So for me, it's pretty much one the same.
0: Okay. Now, based on working in a smaller job and working also in industry, do you think there should be some changes to NFPA or fire department rope rescue or technical rescue training based on, you know, size of the department or anything along those lines?
1: NFPA is good for the big agencies, okay. plain and simple. It puts the education, you know, the the KSAs and the JPOs, it puts them in a good spot because you can pull them through from the document and go through the stuff. If you have a big group to train, the NFPA is fantastic. The problem is the whole onus of almost any of the NFPA standards and integrating with two in, two out, and the other accepted industry regulations it makes it very difficult to to effectively train anyone to operate in a, a two three four man team because there's not as much onus on the individual mm-hmm. operator um so i i went to sprat uh you know almost a year and a half ago at this point i thought i was a competent rope rescue tool. and then i go to a sprat class and they teach me the correct way to go up and down a rope and change over into a, a crawl chest ascender and back and forth and pass knots doing things that I never even thought about. Just the techniques of opening the crawl, stepping out, shutting it back to lock it off so you don't break your chest descender off and just to make those transitions as one individual. So I think the NFPA needs to, To change a little bit to focus more on the individual skills, we always talk about team operations with the instant command on the safety officer and the technical rescue officer and the edge guy and the belay guy and the mainline operator back and forth. But we very seldom actually talk about well, what if five of those hats have to be on the same guy? Well, same individual. Um, Now what? And they do an awful job of outlining that one person can do 15 different skills if you absolutely have to as long as you can rank them in priority and and have a a tactical worksheet to assign those functions to based off the systems employed and and so on and so forth um nfpa is great for the teams not so much for the individual
0: yeah it's interesting i mean i'll throw another question out at you for it i know with the nfpa standard i mean Ascend a fixed line is in the NFPA standard. I'm paraphrasing. It's like ascend, change over descend and um, something else in there with it. Now, is the problem NFPA or is the problem the way the fire department training agencies, state fire colleges, provincial fire colleges has been interpreting NFPA and going, oh, well, climb up 10 feet on two projects and we'll call it a day as opposed to saying, hey, maybe we should grab some rope access gear and teach you how to ascend and descend more of a rope access style. So, I mean, the question being, is the NFPA standard the problem or is the training agency that's interpreting, interpreting NFPA the problem?
1: I think it's mostly interpretation, which unfortunately is all based on money. So I can't sit there and say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a handheld Ascendal for every student in class that is going to be, you know, hundred bucks of pop by the time we get down with shipping tax whatever and then i'm gonna get a, a petrol id for every student that might be in the class to go over one by one to go over the rag climb as a group and then have multiple guys doing everything at once multiple students um you know i can't go out and i can't justify buying 10 asaps because i need to split the class in half to do 10 people climbing 10 people doing the groundwork or the, the top side operations so i think it's mostly based off of funding everything's about money so if i can't justify buying the equipment or we'll changing over everything you know we go to the the whole clutch deal clutch came out as the 11 mil model initially there's tons of departments that will sit down and say hey i have 15 mpds in my cash I can't justify going to a 11 mil model and changing everything I have because I have 15 brand new ropes and brand new half inch MPDs or or 12, five MPDs. It's just not feasible. So when you sit there and you look at the way things are done, I think it's mostly down to money and then the interpretation that is included because of funding. Well, you need to make this work with, you know, we can only make a full day class because that's the only way we can make money on the, the instructor pay and everything else based off the cost of the class, the equipment, so on and so forth. So yeah, long story short, it it comes down to interpretation. And there's not enough focus. We can't run a class with five people effectively because you can't afford to pay the instructors to teach five people if the registration is only for those five people as opposed to 20 people. So I think it's the return on investment kind of deal that limits the way a lot of the stuff is done.
0: Now, when you say return on investment kind of deal, are we talking training agencies or are we talking fire departments? Because, I mean, from a training agency point of view, there's people training rope access, so they're obviously making money at it. So, should a training agency for the fire department not be able to say, hey, you know, this is the type of training that we need, or are we just sort of having a race to the bottom in the fire department training world?
1: I think it's mostly on the fact that from the agency trying to send people for that education, so the typical SPRAT class, depending on what side of the board you're on, let's say for, for kicks and grins, anywhere from 1000 to $1,500 as a student price. So, what agency? By and large, can send one individual to a week-long class, spend say on the high end, fifteen hundred bucks just for the class, on top of the travel and the payroll and everything else goes in it for that individual, not to mention the back time that's spent to cover my spot if I'm gone for a week. So I think by the time it's said and done, the training industry the The training agency, whether it be at the state level, the private level, whatever it is, I think they do okay, but it's all limited based off the cost of training somebody from the fire service. Well, how Our much is fire
0: service training where you are? Like, what would it cost to send someone to the state fire academy to do their, you know, you said basic rescue or tech one, tech two?
1: So for us, a tech one, tech two, you're looking at 200 bucks or less um for the individual class really so heavily yeah, it's,
0: by the government is what you're telling me
1: very much so absolutely okay. so you they're covering pretty much the the basic room and board of the the student not much else um i think in, in new york state the people writing the tech rescue curriculum it's probably an agency of less than 50 or a division of that state agency less than 50 people doing all of it ropes trench building collapse so on so forth so you have a small group of people that'll truly specialist in a general term you know they do all the special operations and there's so few of them but the class participation and the fees that are being put out to to pay for this class it's not even touching the cost of development for these programs. So because it's so state aided from the, the government side of things, state training is pretty cheap as far as the, the cost to going to a class. What's not cheap is backfilling, uh, you know, five file and having the overtime and everything else that exist back home to allow these folks to go to class. And that's where we get in a, in a tough spot out here, just based off funding.
0: See, and that's interesting. Where I'm from, an awareness ops tech rope and then tower on top of that, it can run you anywhere from 3000 to $3,500 for those courses. So when you look at a Sprat wow. course at 1600 1650 whatever it is, I mean, yes, there's definitely different skills. <laughs> You know, team based versus personal based, but you can see there's a, a massive difference in price. And I wasn't real I didn't realize how much the state absolutely subsidized the training there. So yeah, okay, now I can understand it a little Correct. bit more where the state's subsidizing the training, but your department's still having to pay the backfill. So that's Correct. where the for someone in your shoes, where you don't have, mm-hmm. you know, 10 extra guys or girls per shift that are able to slot in then that's where the hiccup and where the loggerhead comes. Right. Okay. Right. So hence doing it more internally. Okay. No, well that makes a lot more sense. And now with the state subsidizing the outside training, can you get stuff from the state for free in regards to those JPRs, KSAs, whatever you want to call them?
1: I think so. Um, they put a lot of stuff out on the own You know, this is the, the NFPA 1001 Firefighter Skill Packet. You, these yeah. are all the ones that the the basic recruit firefighter is going to do. And if you ask, they'll they'll send you the skill sheets they go off of because it's all NFPA by the time it's said and done. That's what almost everything is based off of. Unfortunately, those not much overlap to anything else. It's the OSHA eggs or the equivalent at the state level and the NFPA. There's not much interaction for the basic training with the industrial side of things, the way that a confined space you 1910-146 know, setup has to be done as for the OSHA regs versus the individual rope access training that might exist for an individual walking on the side of a building washing windows. So you're only gonna be available, well, excuse me, the state will only send What they have, which is ultimately one sided, you know, to meet the bill minimum regulations and the NFPA side of things because it's a federal agency.
0: Yeah, no one's paying to get, no one's paying any development fees for them because it's 200 bucks a
1: class. (laughs) Right. Um, So they're easy to get, but it's unfortunately, you might be five years behind the eight ball on the NFPA, like, because maybe it's a 2013 edition. Of the 1006, as opposed to the 2018, and now it's 2020. So, based off the backlog and the lack of people in those development processes, you can't update things fast enough. Okay. So you might be two NFPA editions down by the time you you get your people trained, and already things have changed from you know the the mythical 15 to one that doesn't actually exist, and that's still being pushed out in these classes because there's not enough time, not enough people, not enough money to update and completely dispel these, these myths. So
0: I guess that's the plus and minus. I mean, you're getting training for relatively inexpensive cost because it's state funded, but the training, because it's relatively inexpensive is not keeping up with the current um, resources and uh, standards that are available. Does that kind
1: of sum it up? Pretty much. You get what you pay for. Plain and simple. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: so, um, now you had
0: taught when we chatted before you had, you know, wanted to make some comments in regards to debunking some of the other fire and rescue education. Do you want to uh, take a stab at some of that? I know it's a pretty broad question.
1: Yeah. Hey, yeah, we can give it a go.
0: So, so go ahead. No, I was going to just say go then, you know, like, uh, so, you know, I'll let you take it away there for to start with.
1: All right. So it's looking at my notes, um, cause it's been a couple months since we last talked. So one of the biggest things that I've noticed, and it's could just be in, in my state, I'm not saying it's industry wide. The training begins based off the way the curriculums will set up antiquated skills right off the bat. So, we'd come in and you go to your basic rescue class, and they'll teach you how to use your basic sling using you know anchorage is all done with one inch tube of the webbing for the most part. There's a time and a place for it, but on the same token, there's better stuff out there. those better options, like a you know one hundred and fifty centimeter cable sling that we know is rated to ANSI at five thousand pounds. 22, 23 KN, whatever you want to use as your measurement. There's better stuff out there, but again, it costs money. There's a spool of webbing, I get a 100 bucks all day long, and I have 300 feet worth of webbing. So you come in just getting the basic with the antiquated way of doing things. So you have screw lock cable on everything, and you have a giant cache of steel cable beetles that screw lock that were purchased in 1999 because it was a good deal before the, the Y2K catastrophe was gonna hit. So we're using 20 year old stuff and the, the concepts with them as well. So we're using the old webbing, we're using brake bow racks and figure eight plates and putting a prussic on to your figure eight plates, you are pulling as a conditional self belay. So you sit there and we're doing things from day one in 2020 you're walking in potentially seeing 20-year-old technology because that's all they've, they've been able to afford and they haven't been able to update the curriculum to include the new stuff so you're getting brand new people coming in that have no concept of what rope even is they can't spell not with a k and they sit there and I will teach them stuff that they have to be attentive of they have to keep a hand on a rope coming through a figure eight because without it you're gonna fall so we're teaching these these skills kind of backwards um that's one of the biggest problems i see at the the state level is we're not teaching people the safest way to do things right off the bat so we kind of need to flip our operation considerably because we just don't have the the update equipment and people may only go to that rescue tech basic class, that 24-hour class, and they may only ever see figure eights and break break pro acts. When they go back home to whatever their agency is, those IDs and maestros and clutches and ASAPs and MPDs and all this high-end stuff, they've never even seen before in that class for their captive audience, and they can be told whatever the instructor wants to tell them. So that's one of the biggest things we need to – we need to be teaching people how to use the new age devices, and I use to term loosely. The Petzl ID has been around for, what, 25, 30 years now? It's not a new device, but it's new to us because of popularity and being afraid to change it the way we do anything. So we have to change it around. We have to start with the device that all things considered are safe. A Petzl ID, you pull all the way back, it's going to lock. It's got the panic feature built in, whereas if you hold on to that Prusik, that you're self-belaying yourself with, okay, great, you might completely mind it, and you might go for a quick ride down to the ground. Um, So that's one of the things that we see out here is we're beginning with these old systems. There's a time and a place for it, but it's not the beginning when people come into class. Um, So that's very difficult in a lot of aspects. Okay, just
0: interject on some of that, I guess. I guess every fire department now with all this equipment that's coming out, and in the last ten years, the equipment has taken leaps and bounds. There is a ton more of equipment out there than when a lot of people started. So should the academies just be teaching principles so that when folks go back to their own department, to their own location, that you know they can take those principles and then adapt them to what they have at their own agency or, should the training organizations make available every product or try to make available every product that's out there?
1: Simple answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately at the end of the day, it needs to be principle based training. So that's one of the things that was tough for me with my confined space technician. Um, so I'm back confined space tech going on five years now. And when I go to the state academy, it's all good and well, but they have the, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of communication systems. I promise I don't have that in my department, any of them, because it costs so much for something you almost never use. So that's all good and well, but they're not teaching the basic principle because they're saying, hey, we have item X, Y, Z. You're going to use this because we have it. Well, that's great but we never used the uh, you know the handy talky whatever for motorola for our communications because well we have the high-end wild system we don't need to use the your portable radios so now we go back to where i operate on a day-to-day basis and it's hey we have a trunked system you have no idea how actuality because you've never seen it in your basic training um so I think it's, it's got to be principle-based because there's such a wide variety of equipment. If you go to the city of Buffalo, city of Rochester, that has hundreds of guys on the job and a couple dedicated rescue units, whether it's a rescue engine or it's a true rescue company that's a heavy rescue and all they do is rescue all day long, That's night and day the way they operate and the equipment available from the 15-person volunteer fire department that has two engines and a bus truck that might go to 100 calls a year if they're lucky. So I think we do a huge disservice by not teaching the principles. It has to be done instead of individual items.
0: Okay. Um, Did you have any other thoughts in regards to the training, small team, small department training? Um, I've got a lot of thoughts on it. (laughs) Well, I just asked. We're coming up close to an hour. I've gone through most of my notes. I just want to make sure that if you've got anything else that you want to add in there, that we don't miss it.
1: No, absolutely. Um, So to to put it in a nutshell, you have to go on the, the quick principles. Dedicated main and blade twin tension lines for the big ba- basic system. Single point ankles, you know, on a, a bomb proof ankles the fire department likes to say. And then independent ankles. You need to begin with individual repelling operations. By the time it's said and done, it's tough to show someone how to use the device with a system if they have no idea how it functions individually. And the petso ID, the clutch, those individual devices you can put multiple places huge deal you need to show people how to to use the device both in a, a fixed break and a moving break um, so start off on that get the auto locking devices out that if they screw up they're gonna lessen the the injury by failure as opposed to a, a figure eight play that you're just gonna fall and then teach them how to to use them for both operations getting a victim down getting yourself down and get them back up, so on and so forth. Um, Small team operations, you need to be really good as an individual. Ultimately, you need two bomb-proof people. One's on the top side, one's over the edge, so that you can troubleshoot through things. Everything else, you can teach on the fly for a lot of this stuff because of the equipment, and just get those roles dedicated down. Um, Whoever's going over the edge should be completely 100% because there might not be anyone else coming to help them. And then one person on the top side running as that safety officer or that edge man to make sure that nothing is, is going askew on the top side. So that's a huge deal for us having four people for lucky pre-rigged systems. People need to know how to use the pre-rigged systems and then you know how to build them. If you can't get enough training time to teach them how to break them down and build them back up for the amount of, times that we use this stuff i hope they can at least use it they don't need to know all the ins and outs because 98 percent of the time things go exactly according to plan we can work on the the two percent freak deal that something happens um so that's huge keeping the mechanical advantage system simple there's no need to go into you know excess seven to ones and 12 to ones and you know huge block and tackle setups if you can keep it simple you know two to one up to a six to one however you do it whether it's a simple system or a compound system call it a day don't overcomplicate stuff because you can't get people's attention with the exception of folks like you and i that live for this stuff and you know, we can talk about mechanical advantage all day and different ways to to approach action pulley but if we don't teach people the difference between a prussic mining pulley and a silvus pulley that has edges, you know, squared off edges or not, we're going to lose people. You know, we have to get back to the, the simplicity of we might be able to find a couple extra police officers that'll stand around that can help us pull. Keep it simple. <laughs> so, I don't I'll try to impress people on how much stuff you know. I can rig a, an 11 to 1 mechanical advantage with. Two pulleys and a prussic and a rope grab, and you know a big pen great I don't kill like no one was going to use that in real life, so don't try to to impress them uh, competent instructor, that's a relative to them we see in, in the OSHA and the NFPA regulations quite a bit. make sure level's teaching it knows what they're actually doing, and if you can, try to keep it consistent with one lead instructor on a small agency make sure they're a good competent instructor to begin with but try not to have 15 dozen people coming in out of these classes because the way i tie a figure eight on bite might be different than the way you tie a figure eight on the bite let's get those concepts and those principles down before we we introduce excess opinions into the equation so everyone knows about the opinions everyone's got one so that's that, let me go through uh, Find out who's gonna do what. I have some folks I work with, I know for an absolute 100% fact, they are not going over an edge. So I'm not gonna waste their time only teaching over the edge type operations. They don't need to know how to, to do a rag climb, they need to know the concept of it, but they don't need to be able to, to functionally do one because I know that some of these folks are not going over the edge plain and simple. So find out who's going to do what and work on those people to develop those skills. So that whatever job they do, they will 100% on doing. Um, again, teach individual skills between the, the spread rope access side of things. Some of the grimp techniques of getting someone down as quickly as you can to the victim to stabilize that situation is a huge deal. Um, have a good consistent set of kit if i'm a technician i need to have x number carobials and a rappel device for me and a couple pieces of of rubbing webbing or plusics or whatever slings i'm going to use so i can build stuff on the fly make sure it's the same thing all the time every time Um, it's a huge deal instead of watching folks try to grab what they think they might need at three o'clock in the morning when the rope Equipment hasn't been part of the in training for the past 12 months. It's not going to go well. So that takes a lot of the stress out to begin with. Um, once people train on new stuff, teach them the old stuff in case you go to a mutual aid job someplace. And if my people have only ever seen double clutching and they've never seen a radium release hitch or marinals hitch or whatever kind of Old school systems might be functioning in the volunteer department 20 minutes away that has no equipment. But they're doing stuff the old way because that's all they know how to do. Then us going mutual aid won't help anybody. So once you get the, the new aged equipment down pat, teach them the old stuff. Uh, especially in confined space, don't get hung up on some of these new high-end high-directionals. Arizona Voltaxes and tail adapters are fantastic. But a code tripod will do a lot of the same stuff if you know what you're doing. But you have to teach the physics. And I think, unfortunately, in some of these technician-level classes, we spend so much time on the gadgets that I know I can't justify buying a, a Voltex or tail adapter for five grand because we haven't had a rope rescue yet this year. So buying something that's high-end to have it sitting on the truck, really tough to justify as a, as a boss as an agency so teach people the basic physics how to improvise best they can um basic two in two out concepts if you have one individual over the edge on a rope or in a hole you need to have a second one ready to go to save them in case something happens whether a device fails a rope fails something to that problem um I, I can't stress that enough in, in my environment of What's gonna happen if we send one guy over the edge repelling, something happens to his device. Now he's just a dope on the open. and we didn't rig for rescue on the top side. Now what? You know, you might have to do a pick off of your own person before you even get to the victim, but we don't plan for it. Um, so just looking at those basic concepts with that. Uh, team assignments, make sure your people know what they're doing while you're on the way to the call. Don't sit there and guess. Well, I think Joe's going to go over the edge today maybe because he, you know, looks like he's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It's, it's 826 in the morning, and everyone knows that he's not usually a, a morning person. But he looks good today, so he's going to go over the edge. It's got to be figured out. Whoever the boss is has to know what the people are going to do and how well they're going to do at those jobs. You know, it's not something we should leave to fate once we get on scene to see what's going on. have a a general idea as part that size up we always talk about on the file side Uh, and then aside from that know how to use the equipment you have for more than just one function so if you have say rescue 42 struts um, that use for auto wax they sell tripod head and a-frame head you can use it it's not ideal Still give me a voltax or a tail adapter, but know how to use the stuff you have if you absolutely have to. Um, maybe we go on a, a fire call and we've got our structural stuff on that has a class two harness built into it. And now we go to a rope rescue where we don't have any of our, our full body harnesses. Okay, how are we going to hook in and make this work if we have to? Um, and that's just good, sound, basic techniques. If we're going to find space, make sure you know how to use your, your full gas needle to see what's going on before we send someone inside. Now, same deal with SCBA, a harnesses. Make sure they know how to adjust their helmet correctly so it doesn't come off when they're hanging at, you know, 100 feet in the air. Tie their boots. <laughs> so stuff like that. Um, like those are the – I think I'm sorry I got for that. I go on tangents for hours and hours about it, but we don't have time for that.
0: Well, there's two interesting points you brought up. You mentioned the grimp kind of style, and I know in Europe – and a lot of the grim competitions that we've been down to in Asia, rope access is definitely filtering into the rope rescue world, that individual skill level. And a lot of the fire department trainings in Europe actually have a component of rope access in them. So it's interesting to see even a a job like yourself, where it's, you know, uh, 18 folks starting to look at that rope access and that individual skill level, and I think it's something that probably needs to be more prevalent in a lot of fire departments. So kudos on that. And the other one that you brought up that I found of interest is the writ idea. And you don't hear much about, you hear writ all the time in places like fire or confined space. You don't hear much of it in the rope rescue. Once again, it's stuff we've started to see overseas quite regularly, where a second set of lines gets even just deployed and left so that there is an out or the ability to put another person in Should something go wrong, like you say, equipment failure, personnel use failure, you get to the patient and then there's some failure in communication or uh, with the patient and something goes bad. So it's interesting to see that you're bringing up those types of ideas as well, because they certainly seem to exist everywhere worldwide. And it's good to see that it's getting filtered into different locations around the country.
1: And we'll try it as best we can. We don't have the people. So if we lose one over the edge, okay, great. Now we've got three guys. And if we can't save that that individual that's over and now in trouble, now we'll just even worse for whale than we will because <laughs> there's no one else coming. Yeah. I've got a couple of your stickles floating around. There's no one else coming. We're it. <laughs> especially in, in a small agency with a full pulse and shift. Okay, great. How long is it going to take for backup to get, though? If they show up, yeah,
0: it's a, it's certainly a different dynamic when you have, you know, personnel staffing issues to that level. You definitely have to think about different things. So, unless you've got anything else, we'll probably shut it down there. We've been going about an hour and uh, I appreciate you coming on.
1: Oh, I appreciate the time. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I, I love listening to the podcast. You're about due for a new one. Just say so you no. Know. Yeah, I know. This it. is going to be it. <laughs> um, uh,
0: yeah, we had a couple of, uh, Meetings and a few other things that had to happen. So it's eaten up a bunch of my time, but uh, I've got a few in the pipe ready to go coming up here. So thank you very much. Awesome.